Half these people came here tonight, Jack, and watched you catch the ball. Other half came to see you drop it. I was gonna throw it to you just to show you up, but I wanna win. I'm calling somebody else's number. I can get open. You drop that damn thing again, Jack, your life is over. Just throw me the goddamn ball, Reno. Hello, hello, I'm Katie, and welcome to Retromade, your pop culture rewind. Are you ready for another trip down memory lane? Today, we're gonna travel back to January of 1986 to discuss the sports dramedy, the best of times, and all of the other happenings going on at that time. And today, I could not be more honored to have Craig Cohen here with me today. He has been podcasting for quite a while and is one of the favorites from the Last of the Action Heroes podcast network. And despite us both being on that network and both covering Sylvester Stallone, happy belated birthday, Sly, by the way, this is actually the first time that Craig and I are officially meeting. Can you believe it? I know. It's it's crazy. And thank you so much for having me on. I uh, really enjoy the concept of your show. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking to the, this movie because um, according to my Google uh, searches, I couldn't really find anybody else that has talked about this. That would not you surprise know, but with me. The, but with the title of the movie, it's kind of hard. Anytime you put best in a search engine, you know, it comes up with things. But um, yeah, I, I always love talking movies that haven't really gotten a lot of podcast coverage. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, thank you again for joining me. Do you want to oh, give us a quick little rundown of what you're working on? Yeah, aside from the guest spots I do on the network, uh, I think the main show you'll hear me on is the sort of monthly or almost monthly show that I do with Ryan and Doug. And we, you know, have been burning through most of Sly's lesser fun <laughs> movies or uh, quality movies. Uh, so that's ma my main podcast outlet right now. And then... Uh, during the pandemic, I was furloughed for about 15 months, okay. and it allowed me to have a lot of time to spend with uh, my wife and my, my dogs. Uh, but it also allowed me to sort of re-explore my love of making music. So uh, that's really what I spend a lot of my uh, my free time on is, you know, uh, instrumental-based, uh, weird-sounding music that um, I have a lot of fun making. It's um, impressive. Whether or not people have fun listening. Oh, thank you. <laughs> It's a really, really fun process. Uh, like for me, making music is like solving a, a math problem almost. You know, you oh. start with something and then you're like, well, how does how do I get to where it, it's going to sound the way it needs to sound? It's been cool. It's been a fun process and uh, it's something I really enjoy doing. And it's kind of filled a little void that was uh, created when I stopped really, really, really actively podcasting. And I've said this on pretty much every podcast I guest on, but uh, as the the creator and host of this show i'm sure you know uh, how much work goes into creating a, even a 90 minute podcast i appreciate all the work podcasters do and uh having you know produced and edited shows myself uh some of those slycast episodes we did were three close to three hours and like oh wow editing a, <laughs> ed editing a three-hour show yeah. is just not fun especially when you're uh, as meticulous as I tended to be when I was mm -hmm. editing. I, again, I appreciate all the work podcasters do. And uh, one thing about the the network um, is the quality of shows we have and the, the lineup that Ryan has assembled. It's really remarkable. And um, I think the, the network is, is such a cool thing. And 
one of your favorite podcasters on the network isn't podcasting, somebody else is putting mm-hmm. great, great content up there. Uh, and I hate the fact that I just said content, but uh, I'm the same yeah. way. I hate it when people say content creator. It's a big yeah. pet peeve. Like it's an ick to me somehow. But yeah, it has creative. Most of us are doing this because we enjoy it and we get something out of it. Um, so the fact that, you know, you can say something that's artistic uh, in nature is content. It just sort of makes it sound like something you feed into the Internet meat grinder. And, Agreed. But we've been so conditioned to call it Kanto. It even slipped into my vernacular. Same. Well said. And uh, listeners, unlike me, Craig is very well spoken. So we'll be treated to that over the course of today's episode. <laughs> Let's get into the 1980s frame of mind by opening the time yes. capsule from January of 1986. Now, the 1985-86 primetime season at the popular shows included, as always, it seems, The Cosby Show, Family Ties, Murder, She Wrote, Cheers, Dallas, and Dynasty, The Golden Girls, and this was actually their premiere season, and they're always in the top top rankings for any season they're on. I'm a huge Golden Girls fan. Miami Vice, Who's the Boss, and Night Court. So that's topping the ratings that year. Yeah, I, I think that was Miami Vice's second season, okay. I think, because I, I think they started in the fall of 84. Um, Miami Vice, one of my all-time favorite shows. Really? Um, did you like the movie? Yeah. Movies I did. Girl, I guess. I, I, yeah, I, I did. Um, and the thing I appreciated about it is, you know, Miami Vice had this element where um, Don Johnson's character, Sonny, um, was undercover. And I think as the seasons went on, they got a little bit more into the undercover aspect of his of his job. But that was one thing I think the movie did remarkably well. And, you know, Michael Mann is a very detail oriented guy. And that movie really explored uh, undercover from a law enforcement perspective uh, in a way that I think was a lot more detailed than, you know, most of the time we see in movies. And you're never going to get the accurate experience. But the idea of what they did to establish covers and how far back they needed to establish people and what databases they needed to populate. So if searches were run uh, and then also just really to show the like the toll that undercover work takes on somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe like Donnie Brasco was another movie that explored that pretty well. But and then there was just some tremendous uh, action sequences in Miami Vice and not like spectacular, easy, you know, out of this world stuff. But there were some like gunfights. Uh, one in particular was like in a scrapyard where they had like a 50 cal. And I remember seeing that in theaters. And like when they shot that 50 caliber, like you felt it, um, you know, just because uh, the movie, you know, the mo- at least the movie theater I saw it in, like they used to play everything so like ridiculously mm-hmm. loud. Uh, funny story, like probably around the time like Armageddon was out, um, you know, me and a buddy went to see like a smaller movie that you know, that's some and like in the small movie when it was quiet, you could like, hear Armageddon next door because it was so loud. I remember that effect happening as well. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because Miami Vice is not like a kid's show, but it, it's so funny how, uh, you know, people around my age, you know, probably your age uh, and probably not even like I'm probably generalizing just because of my experiences, but like being exposed to things as a kid that aren't for kids really sort of helped shape 
you know, the things that you go on to appreciate. I could not agree more throughout doing these episodes. I've come to learn that I'm the youngest child as well. So I, I yeah. saw a lot of things probably that weren't appropriate for me to see, but I'm glad that I did. I think I just have a different frame of reference than younger people these days. It's always funny because everybody thinks that their experience in childhood was markedly different than, you know, the kids today. But, you know, kids today, 20, 30 years from now, they're going to have the same remember when moments. You know, they're not going to be framed the same as ours, but uh, they're still going to, you know, kind of, you know, looking back and, and nostalgia and, you know, that kind of viewpoint is always going to exist. Uh, and that's one of the interesting things about getting older uh, is just the things you look back on, the things that made an impact on you. And then also like seeing yourself slowly, you know, get out of touch, especially when you see like, TikTok trends and things like that. And you're like, wow, I, I just don't get it. And that's okay. Because mm. I'm not supposed to but like you understand why like parents went ape shit when like Elvis came out. That's a you good know? point. You're making me feel old though now, Chris. <laughs> but <laughs> that's true. While not in the top rankings, some of the notable premieres of this season included 227. Do you remember that show with Marla Gibbs? Yeah, yeah that was a, yeah, uh, Jack Hay. Jack Hay. Um, yeah, that um, was a spinoff yeah. of the Jeffersons. I thought it might have been. Uh, was the Jeffersons set, I'm a little confused because 227 was set in Washington, D.C.? Okay, yeah, no, Jefferson's was in, was in New York City. But maybe they just moved or something. Well, it's it's always funny how, like, they would get creative with spinoffs because it's like, oh, we like this character, but we don't meet them in the same setting. That's true. Um, another interesting spinoff that a lot of people don't know is uh, Family Matters with Urkel mm -hmm. was a spinoff of Perfect Strangers. Perfect Strangers. I, I think the wife on Family Matters was, like, the elevator yes. operator at their building. You're right. <laughs> You're right, because Family Matters came later. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. There were a lot of spinoffs at this time. You know what else is funny? One thing that's great about streaming is there's still a lot of stuff you can't stream, but there's a lot of stuff that even like 10 years ago, like unless you were like buying complete season DVDs, it was hard to watch. But mm -hmm. uh, one of the funniest things is like seeing a show from like the 80s and seeing like these uh, secret pilot episodes for other shows. So it's like, we're gonna try and spin mm -hmm. off this show. This episode, like the main cast won't really be in it. There'll be like other characters that we're gonna try and spin off. And then either the show spun off successfully or it was like, they made that episode. It didn't hit the way it was supposed to. And now it's just this like weird episode that doesn't feature like in Miami Vice's case, you know, I don't think there is one, but like, that doesn't feature Crockett and Tubbs. <laughs> you know, it's funny that that's a really good point. And it's blatant when you see it. There was one in the Golden Girls where they were okay. trying to spin off. It ended up being the Empty Nest spinoff. But the people in the episode that they were trying to spin off, the original, like that episode, none of those people except for Charlie Leisure's, David Leisure. They recast everybody David else. Leisure's yeah. character, Charlie, was the only one who stayed in everyone. The set was the same. It was the same house, but the entire cast yeah. was different. And it is notoriously the worst Golden Girls episode, despite <laughs> having Rita Moreno in it. It's funny to see, like, you know, what ingredients get, you know, uh, worked on when a, a pilot uh, or a show is being developed. Three's Company, which is another show I have a lot of fondness mm -hmm, for. Same. Uh, there's like three different pilot episodes where there's like a different Janet, a different Chrissy. Oh, really? It was like, yeah, it was just like, let's see 
what what chemistry people have with Jack. And on the first one, they're like, well, obviously this Chrissy isn't working, so we're going to replace her. Uh, I think they're on the like the first season or the second season DVD. They included them as bonus features. Oh, but, cool. Uh, I always get a kick out of watching pilot episodes that were redone. Star Trek is another classic one. Star Trek is my, one of my all-time favorite shows. The original pre-Captain Kirk pilot episode uh, is really interesting to watch. And they actually ended up like cannibalizing that episode in a later episode once it went to series where like they used footage from that episode and kind of tied it together. Uh, I mean, if you watch that original uh, Star Trek pilot, Bach is like just different enough that oh, you're like, what's going on okay. with Spock and things? Uh, it's wild how much thought used to go into television. And, and I'm not sure a lot goes into television, you know, thinking about television anymore, you know, in terms of, I think they've got it figured out enough. They're like, you know, we know what character types we need uh, and things like that. Whereas, I don't know, it seems like TV in the 70s and 80s, it was kind of still like the wild wild. It was. There's a lot of formula involved, but I agree. There was more risks to be taken or something, it seems. Uh, so Growing Pains also premiered this season, which I loved that show. And that's more formulaic family show. But then we have Small Wonder, the little girl robot. Yeah. So that's very uh -huh. off the wall. And then Mr. Belvedere. Oh, yeah. I loved that. Yeah. And what's interesting yeah. is that they're just a regular middle class family that somehow can afford to have a butler. And that's also a theme, I think, that was throughout the 80s and 90s a little bit yeah, and that was that trend that continued like three's company was based on a, a british sitcom and so was uh, okay. mr belvedere i believe yeah like that was a like a, a big thing and even up until the office you know the office was a, a uk show that they were like yep. oh let's adapt it for u.s audiences mr belvedere is a show i remember us watching growing pains was one i remember us watching uh it's weird though because you know, a lot of times I, I try and like think about was I watch, watching that first run or was it like when it hit syndication and I would watch it like when I got home from school? I remember Three's Company, but I don't I was not old enough to have watched it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the shows that I have references to, I believe I was watching in syndication reruns of them in many cases. Yeah. But Moonlighting also premiered this season, MacGyver. Uh, I remember very much watching my mom must have liked Moonlighting and my dad must have liked MacGyver. That was classic. And then also WWF primetime wrestling oh on the USA Network. Were you a wrestling mm -hmm. fan? Yeah. It's so funny because uh, I'm in an age group where like, we are related to people that watched wrestling when it was still considered a competitive sport. Okay. So like, you know, my like my dad's grandparents, my great grandparents, they would watch you know, WWWF matches in the, you know, 50s and 60s. And, you know, they didn't, the business hadn't been exposed yet. So we definitely grew up uh, around that and sort of the golden age of WWF, you know, where it transitioned from like Bob Backlund to Hulk Hogan mm -hmm. and it kind of got more theatric and like WrestleMania exploded. He, wrestling was a big part of, of our time growing up. Uh, they used to come through, and this is so funny because of how big wrestling is now, but they used to come through the boys club, like maybe four times a year. Oh. And it was just like, you know, your typical high school gymnasium. Um, so it would, only, it would be a couple hundred people and you wouldn't get the super big stars. Like you wouldn't get Macho Man or Hogan, but you'd get like Junkyard Dog, oh. Don Morocco. Okay. Uh, and then I also remember before pay-per-view, 
uh, WrestleMania two, I believe, um, we watched on closed circuit. So you go to the boys club, you buy a ticket and they'd have a, probably what by today's standard is like a real shitty screen and projector. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you'd watch, you know, the closed circuit feed with everyone else. And then probably the next year is when they finally figured out how to like do pay-per-view and you were able to just order it through your cable provider at home. But yeah, no, wrestling was a big, big part of my, uh, my adolescence. Yeah, that seems to be a common theme. It was even for me. My grandpa watched it a lot. The other funny thing about wrestling is um, you mentioned primetime wrestling, mm -hmm. but uh, there was uh, on USA Network, they used to do the Cartoon Express, I think, yes, on Saturday morning. I loved it. We talked about it. I talked yeah. about it on another previous episode, I think. Yeah. So the Cartoon Express would end and then they'd have like whatever the 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. WWF show was. I, I don't remember yeah. what they called it. So I think that's what kind of got kids and they were like, we're going to go from cartoons to wrestling. Um, so I think a lot of kids were just introduced or exposed to wrestling through that. And, you know, the proximity to cartoons sort of uh, continued to engage that sort of fantasy element of a, of a kid's mind. Uh, no, that was a great, great time to watch wrestling because you still thought it was real, but there was rumblings that it wasn't. Yeah. So it was kind of like a Santa Claus factor. Yeah. Good way to put it. Where, where you're like at the point where you're like, I don't, logic says I shouldn't believe, but I still, you know, believe a little bit. I've always leaned towards that. Like, you know, in the Mulder and Scully of the, you know, the X-Files personalities, mm -hmm. uh, I always lean way heavier Mulder. Like I'm like the, I want to believe. It. Okay. I like that. I do. Now, continuing on with, I don't know, the time that butlers were really popular. These were shows that ended in 86. Benson and Different Strokes, both Butler, both had butlers or some sort of live-in person that helped around the house. And then Knight Rider. I never watched Knight Rider, though. Did you? Oh, oh yeah. Knight Rider was big for, you know, that car. I mean, anytime you had a kick-ass car, like, you got the kids. Dukes of Hazard, Knight okay. Rider. That totally makes sense. Now, I'm not going to go into a ton of cartoons because there's a lot of repeats that we've already covered. And we talked about yeah. the Cartoon Express, but one that I had to call out because it premiered this season was She-Ra, Princess of Power, the twin sister yeah. to He-Man. Did you watch either of them or were you to He-Man? Yeah, I think we might have been just starting to age out yeah. because I remember some of my younger cousins were like super, super He-Man. And I think we were still like G.I. Joe guy. You know, okay. me and my brother were like G.I. Joe guys. But I remember like going over my my cousin's house and they would have all the He-Man stuff. But. I don't really remember watching that cartoon too much. It's one of those things where it's so big and so popular that you can't help but like know all the names yeah. of all the characters and all those kinds of things. Uh, but yeah, I think I might have been just at the, you know, the tail end. It's like the same thing with like Ninja Turtles as well. Same. I'm the same with that because I'm a girl, but uh, it, in my periphery, I'm aware of it. And it's just it's become like a pop culture phenomenon. So but for those of you who really liked She-Ra or He-Man, I loved she -Ra. Her name is Adora, and mm -hmm. his name was Adam, so Adora and Adam. And her horse, or her uh, flying unicorn, I didn't recall that his name was Swiftwind, and that okay. He-Man's green tiger is Battlecat. I think I remember Bat Battlecat more so. But yeah, Battlecat, I remember. Nice little blast from the past there. That, so the movie we're covering is January of 1986, so we're just a month after Christmas. This was huge for the toy season that Christmas. 
Do you have any guesses for what the big toys of that season were? We're too late for Cabbage Patch Kids, right? No, nope. Cabbage Patch Kids is oh, one. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, God, those were like the craze behind Cabbage Patch Kids was crazy. Yeah. I don't know. I want to say maybe like town puppies. I think that was actually like a year or two later that those got really okay. big. But yeah, I loved those. But yeah, Cabbage Patch Kids this year, the biggest was Teddy Ruxpin. Oh, yeah. You put the cassette yeah. in and he'd talk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't Maybe. actually have one, but my my neighbor did. That Those same He-Man cousins, they had a Teddy Ruxpin. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> He-Man cousins. And then mm -hmm. Care Bears, of course, huge. I actually yeah. still have yeah. mine and my Cabbage Patch doll. Um, and then for boys, I mean, it was very gender specific, it seems, back in the day. Yeah. The Transformers and G.I. Joe. Oh, yeah. So those were the big yeah. toys that year. And I, I think Hasbro did both G.I. Joe and uh, and Transformers. They had some big ticket items. Like, I don't remember what a Cabbage Hatch doll cost. They were I really mean, expensive. Yeah. But I think it was also a supply and demand thing. But like. That's true. Uh, I mean, was what Cabbage Patch doll forty dollars? I think I mean, so. Like, what do, I think, yeah. which would be like, I think I've looked up the equivalent. It would be like a, about a hundred bucks now, or maybe more. Yeah, something like yeah. that. But like GI Joe and Transformers, like GI Joe had their correct carriers, mm -hmm. and that thing had to be like probably like sixty or seventy dollars. Oh wow! Uh, there was like a point where Transformers like, kind of like got involved in like, well, how can we steal some of like. Voltron's audience. So um, they had all construction equipment that would form like one big, you know, Voltron style transformer. Um, Constructicons, maybe. Uh, they never got really creative with names. Uh, and that, <laughs> I remember that was like another big, big ticket. Um, you know, it was like a difference between selling like a $4 action figure and like the $60, you know, aircraft carrier wow. for them to all fight on. Yeah. Christmas, like it was a big, and there you couldn't buy things online, so you had to go physically to the store, yeah. and it's probably gone. Yeah. To, yeah, it was the whole thing. Thank you, mom and dad. I still, I oh, I well, yeah, I thank you indeed. I still feel bad about the amount of money uh, my parents spent on like stuff that just eventually either got sold for pennies on the dollar at a garage sale, or you know, just eventually got thrown out. As an adult, that's things you appreciate. You're like, you know, so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah like. Yes, I very much appreciate the way that I grew up. Yeah. 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 I don't know if I'd have it in me to spend that kind of money, but. Well, um... I waste a lot of money on my dogs, so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the humans, just the dogs. And a lot of people are like, why would you spend that much money on X, Y, or Z? Yeah, no, no, that's a good point. Okay. Now, I usually do like the top five or the top 10 billboards for from a music perspective. Um, they went to 15 today because there's some good ones. And okay, awesome. So many and two from Rocky Fork. Now, for those of you listening, so this movie, Best of Times, came out in January of 1986. Rocky Four was immensely popular and it came out like over Thanksgiving, probably in yeah. 1985. So just a couple months previous. So there's that was like a huge thing going on at this time. But the number one uh, top billboards is That's What Friends Are For. By Dionne Warwick yeah. featuring Elton John, Gladys Knight, Stevie Wonder. Remember that song? Oh, yeah. yeah. And then yeah, yeah. the number two song, this comes from Rocky Four. Do you have a guess, Craig? God, I'm uh, showing my lack of stream slide knowledge. <laughs> Burning Heart by Survivor. 
I can oh, okay. literally picture yeah, yeah. they like are showing up in Russia at this time when that comes on. Yeah, that's a good one. And then Wham's I'm Your Man is number three. Stevie Nicks has number four with Talk To Me. Say You, Say Me, Lionel Richie is number five. Bruce Springsteen's My Hometown is number six. And then number seven is When the Going Gets Tough, The Tough Gets Going by Billy Ocean. And Paul McCartney with Spies Like Us is number eight. I don't think I... Yeah, those are both... Those are both movie songs, right? Like Spies Like Us was I, a movie. Well, was it a James Bond movie? It kind of sounds like it. No, it was like a it was like a Chevy Chase. It was okay. like a Dan Aykroyd. It was a comedy. And then of course Billy, uh, yeah. that Billy Ocean song was in was that the romancing the was that the Jewel of the Nile? Oh, which one it is. It's it is one of those. And I should know because I yeah, covered no, both I think, of them. I think eighty yeah, I think eighty six would have been Jewel of the Nile, right? Yes. Yeah, probably like 84 and 86. So yes, it would have been Jewel of the Nile. Yep, you're yeah. right. Spies Like Us, I, I'm, I'm not hearing Me neither. It in my head. I can't um, picture that one. Number nine is Walk of Life by Dire Straits. Oh, yeah. that was a big song. Stevie Wonder's Go Home is number 10. And How know. Will I Know is Whitney Houston oh. is number 11. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Conga is number 12 by Gloria Estefan. Oh, Miami yep. Sound yep. Machine, yeah. Kyrie by... Mr. Mister. Yeah. Oh, Mr. I can't Mr. picture yeah, that yeah. song though. I'd attempted, but um, <laughs> I I couldn't hit the notes as well as you. Oh no no. Yeah, You'd know okay. it if you heard it. And then I hadn't heard of this either. Number fourteen is "I Miss You" by Climax, and Climax is spelled K L Y M A X X. Yeah, they were like uh, kind of like those like proto like R and B type. Okay. Oh, bands. okay. Got it. Yeah, like kind of like that soft, like not a Rick yeah. James R and B, but more like, like Casey uh, Jojo or something like uh, that. Or yeah, like kind of yeah, yeah, smoother, like yeah, like less offense, like more of like the radio friendly, okay. <laughs> um, you know, as opposed to like Rick James, which is like I'm going to kick down your front yeah. door and you know, super make free you need to take a shower after you listen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> Do you have a guess? Number fifteen is also for Rocky Four, so we've already done Burning Heart by Survivor. Is there another Rocky Four song I remember? Was Hearts on Fire in part four? It was, but it didn't top the charts <laughs> this week. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to need some Well, help. we just had the 4th of July. Living in America, James Brown. Oh, yeah. right. Okay, yeah. wow. Yeah. Wow. So that was... Yeah. So that's the that's number 15. So those were some fun billboards. What a... Like, we're in the mid-80s, very much so during this time. So lots of fun stuff. Yeah, and you mentioned Wham. There's oh, that. Yeah. Um, they just put up that that Wham documentary on um, on Netflix, which we watched uh, last night. Which how was it? Was interesting. It's good. I was never a huge Wham fan, especially when Wham yeah, was Wham. Or George I mean, Michael. One of the things is as as you get older, you start to appreciate at least the musicianship and mm -hmm. the talent involved. But like, you know, in 1986, I was not listening no. to Wham. <laughs> um, it was good. The interesting thing about it was they kind of framed it. And I don't know if this is like revisionism or it's just the way it was. But like they framed it as like everybody involved knew that Wham was just a vehicle to eventually get George Michael oh. solo. Obviously, George Michael isn't here to clarify that, but they use a lot of archival interviews with him 
Uh, and it seems like they always knew that, like, you know, they were going to take off and it was going to be a springboard to George Michael being a solo artist. And uh, again, that was kind of a, a revelation that was really surprising to me. And it's also shocking, Katie, that like how short Wham's time was. It was like a two year yeah. window where they went from obscurity to like superstardom and then they were done. And George Michael went off and did his solo career. Uh, it's cool, though. It's one of those documentaries, and this is kind of a style I appreciate it. They did it with um, an Alice Cooper one a couple years ago where you don't see 2023 Andrew Ridgely talking about Wham. Hmm. You hear 2023 Andrew Ridgely's voice, uh, oh. but you never see him on camera. They just use all archival footage. So anytime that you hear Andrew Ridgely in 2023 talking, you're not yeah. seeing him. And I think the cool thing about that for me, at least from a, a dissecting a filmmaking style, is you're not equating the older person you're seeing on screen with this young person that's doing things. So it kind of makes it seem like it's more immediate, mm -hmm. which I kind of appreciate. It's an interesting approach. And I'm sure like, you know, when there's ego involved, I'm sure Andrew Ridgely wanted to be seen on camera. What? No, I <laughs> I'm, to your point about you don't want to remember like whatever he looks like now. So if I, yeah. he probably looked really great in the eighties. And so if I were him, I kind of want people to remember me looking that way. <laughs> well, that's another funny thing too, because like, um, I don't know if you remember, uh, probably 10 years ago at this point, which is just funny how like time just oh my God. by faster the worst. and faster. Uh, they reissued all of the Phil Collins albums. They mastered them and put bonus tracks. But Phil Collins reshot all of the covers with like his older face. Really? So like no jacket. Yeah, no jacket required, like which is just like a really tight shot on him. It's like, you know, 65 year old Phil Collins, which is interesting because I'm like, he didn't change any of the music, uh, but he was like, yeah, this is what I look like now. And I don't want people to see it. So it's kind of interesting how different people or different celebrities uh, deal with it. I mean, another one that was like famously that really sort of um, detailed growing old was Johnny Cash mm -hmm. and those American recordings he did towards the end of his life. And even Bob Dylan has gone down that road, too. It's really interesting. And I'm so glad I'm at a point in my life where, like, I have a job and I don't depend on my creative side to put food mm -hmm. on our table. Um but like you see bands going on tour, oh, so many, you know, that were that were popular in the 60s and 70s. And these are artists that are in their 70s, mm -hmm. 60s, 70s, sometimes in their 80s. And like the tour poster will have like them at 22. And That's I'm like, sells you're selling like, yeah, exactly. And it like sometimes it really bums me out because like I'm a big Brian Wilson in the Beach oh. Boys fan. And I went and saw Brian Wilson a couple of years ago, like probably a year before the pandemic. And like the poster, it was like 1968 Brian. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's cool to see that. But I'm like, I'm going to see the 78 year old version of that. Some it's can pull it off, though. I feel like very few, though. The Rolling Stones, I feel like they're one that still kind of has it despite being really old. Oh, that was that same year uh, that I saw Brian Wilson. Um maybe two months earlier, we saw the Rolling Stones, which was like, we drove to Arizona for that because uh, we didn't have the stadium here yet. And that was like the closest yep. show we could get tickets for. Ultimate bucket list item for me. Like I was like, I have to see the Rolling Stones before they aren't the Rolling mm -hmm. Stones anymore. And it was like the third to last show that Charlie Watts yeah. did before he yeah. passed away. So I remember sitting like 
in that stadium and like, the smile did not leave my face the entire time i we love there, that like, uh, my sister yeah. and i went but it's just it, we just had the oh, worst yeah? well because we grew up our dad is he's like a huge stones fan so we grew up with it and then they came to denver yeah. and we got we had there was a ticket fiasco and we ended up with the worst seats in the stadium it was oh. so i guess i would recommend uh splurging i mean we did splurge like the tickets were super expensive but i'm not a big stadium fan Stadiums are not yeah. are not great. Uh, was it that last tour, like the 2018? Yeah, probably because Charlie was still with us. Um, and they're, I yeah. feel like they're touring again. And then that same sister, because Aerosmith's coming, and she's like, do you want to go to Aerosmith? I'm like, no, yeah. I just kind of don't. I mean, I love Aerosmith, and I did see them. Thankfully, I did see them in concert. But even then, that was probably in like 99. And so they yeah. weren't the Aerosmith that I knew even then. Yeah. I mean, but that was probably the best time to see that band in terms of like them at the peak of their uh, performance ability. Because like at that point, I think that like all of them were clean and sober at that point. They had been on the road for like years at that point. So like they were as sharp as you could be. So that probably saw them like probably the best time to see them. They did a residency here. um, Oh, that's right. That end, ended up getting canceled because Steven Tyler went into rehab and now they're doing like their farewell tour. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they're ever going to do that residency again, but like, there's a, a really small, intimate theater here, uh, Dolby branded or whatever. And that's like the one cool thing about like residencies here in Las Vegas. You can see these artists in like really sort of like, you know, 2,500 seat environments uh, as opposed to like 40,000 seat stadium that's got shitty acoustics. We could probably talk all day about old-timer concerts. Uh, before we get into the movie, there's just a few bits of news and events from January of 1986. Only in 1986 was the first MLK Day celebrated as a federal holiday. Wow, like it, yeah. I guess I would have thought it was far earlier, but yeah. 86. And then the inaugural class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. Yes, yeah. yeah. I, again, I thought that was earlier too. No, because that was like, um, I believe it's the year like the Beatles or the Beach Boys. It was um, Chuck Berry, James Brown, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, Fats Domino, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Robert Johnson, Jimmy Rogers, Jimmy Yancey, Alan Free, John Hammond, and Sam Phillips. I mean, those are like oh. the originalists, you know. Like, oh, okay, yeah. so then probably 87 was when like the Beach Boys and the yeah, uh, Beatles probably. went in and Mike Love made a fool of himself. Um, that's great. Um, I mean, I, people talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it is what it is. Those induction ceremonies are awesome. Uh, I love seeing bands get together sometimes that haven't played together in sometimes decades uh, and just playing. But yeah, no, 86. Yeah, that was when somebody was like, hey, we can make some money off of nostalgia. <laughs> oh, that's always the, the impotence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then on January 28th, the space shuttle Challenger exploded. Yeah. 73 seconds after liftoff from Cape Canaveral with all seven crew members killed. I actually yeah, I, vaguely recall this. Yeah, I was in school. I remember this vividly. Um, it's funny because we did not get to watch it. Uh, the group of kids I was with were not, I guess, uh, considered gifted enough uh, or smart enough or uh, excelled enough to actually get the like, TV on the cart wheeled into the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I remember another class got to watch it and we didn't. So we got to hear like probably secondhand um, after it happened from other kids that were like, you know, yeah, it blew up. And I remember 
at that time I was getting shots for allergies and I remember sitting in the waiting room uh, to get my allergy shot that afternoon after school and like wall to wall coverage about that. Um, yeah, I remember that, you know, vividly. And the other thing I remember is like how terrible we used to be in terms of the jokes that like were instantly being mm -hmm. told at their expense. And I guess you still get those, but you know, uh, at least now people realize how inappropriate it is. But like, I remember as a 12 year old, really telling some jokes about those astronauts that like, uh, are just terrible, terrible, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, kids are shitty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was such a defining moment. You know, that was one of those moments that like, it's probably like, you know, people that were alive in the 60s can talk about when Kennedy got shot. Yeah, it um, was. I mean, that's, you know, something that, you know, the nation as a whole sort of remembers. It was, that's man. It's, if you look back now at like what led up to it and like people that were like identified problems. Uh, oh, yeah, there's a three or four part documentary on Netflix about it. And there was a, a guy at NASA that was like, hey, we really shouldn't be launching in these conditions uh, with the cold because like a certain piece will expand a certain way. And, you know, they kind of just brushed the guy off. Uh. And in hindsight's always 2020, but like it must not have been fun to be that guy. Like, you know, seeing it happen, being like, well, I kind of warned I about this, so, but yeah. Yeah, that also just shows that like a lot of times, you know, like things go so far. It's to like the point where it's like the point of no return, but we're not here to bum each other out. But you know, what's uh, funny, not funny is a lot of the stuff that comes up in like what happened at this time. A lot, a lot of it is kind of sad, sad stuff. So let's move on <laughs> for almost to the movie. Uh, but before we do, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts fandom or otherwise uh, that you have to share about kurt russell our ultimate everyman kurt russell is one of those it's funny because you try and think about like your first exposure to somebody mm -hmm. um and you know kurt russell was one of those people he had like that whole child actor career where he was doing the disney movies he had that guest starring spot on gilligan's island so it's kind of like you're always kind of aware of that person the first thing I probably remember him from is, as weird as this sounds, like used cars, whatever year that was, like that was probably like 80 maybe 82, 82, okay. 83, like probably like right around the time of the thing. And we'll talk about it with this movie too, but like you know, we watched a lot of movies that like my dad wanted to watch, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so That's like, the way that it was. Yeah. So like odds are like used cars was probably like my first exposure to to Kurt Russell. And then of course, this same year we got Big Trouble in Little China, which for a kid my age, like completely, completely hit like all the notes. I know like Ryan sort of asked like he had never Ryan, seen it before. Yeah. And he had also asked like who it was made for because it was also rated PG thirteen. Um uh, I don't know. You know, I don't remember going to see that movie in theaters, but it was definitely like I, I think Carpenter in that movie, he was just trying to tap into like what really later became sort of big in like the, I want to say like the early 2000s when Louching Tiger came out oh, yeah. and like Kill yeah. Bill, like that whole like Shaw Brothers kind of mentality, like, uh, and John Carpenter as always was way ahead of the curve there. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that was a movie that I always responded to big, I remember when Big Trouble in Little China came out on DVD, it was like on my lunch break from work at the time I was in a job that like we would deliver audiovisual equipment like hotels and stuff so like 
on my lunch break between hotels. Like I remember going to Suncoast and overpaying for that DVD. Uh, I was always a fan of Kurt Russell. Okay. So charismatic. And I think it was kind of like that every man aspect of it. There was always a, like a level of sincerity to his performances. You could relate to him. He looked like possibly a guy that would come over, um, that worked with your dad or whatever. Schwarzenegger and Stallone, like those guys always seemed like they were ripped from the pages of a comic book, uh, which is fine. I mean, I devoted a whole podcast to Stallone um, and I love Schwarzenegger. But, uh, you know, the kind of thing that, you know, it was kind of like that Bruce Willis effect as well. It was like it was kind of cool to see a guy that like you could feasibly like know in real life uh, doing stuff. And the other thing I really, really liked about Kurt Russell, and I think we talked about this either in a behind the scenes sort of last of the action hero uh, messenger chat or on one of the various episodes i've done i always loved the fact that like kurt russell never fully pigeonholed himself into action movies and this Mm is you know the movie we're going to talk about is a perfect example of that but he was able to do a a perfect uh a big trouble in little china but then he was also able to do like comedy like overboard um but then also like Right around the time he did the thing at Escape from New York, he did Used Cars, which was another comedy. Um, Or John Carpenter's Elvis, which is like, I think when we talk about Elvises and people that have portrayed Elvis, I don't think anybody ever discusses what a great Elvis performance uh, Kurt Russell gave. It's Um, on my list for this season. He's played Elvis more than once. Yeah. Uh, He wore Elvis garb in 3,000 Miles to Graceland. Yeah. Um, Who are you doing Elvis with? So here's the deal. The ones that I kind of assume nobody will want to do with me, I do yeah. solo. So okay. if ever anybody has like any specifics, like non-hit, then, or the lesser known ones. For example, I did Fox and the Hound solo and I did Skate Town USA, Patrick's first role solo. Just because mm-hmm. I assume that there's people wouldn't want to cover them, but could be wrong. If and when you get around to it and you, you feel like you need you know, a buddy or for Elvis, I'm, I'm down. I'm awesome. John Carpenter's one of my all time favorite filmmakers. Um, and I, I love TV movies. Um, I think TV movies are kind of a lost art in this day and age. It's a good point. Um, I liked them too. It, it, there's just no need for them anymore. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We came up on the anniversary of it and I remember like Salem's lot, like was that Stephen King, uh, it oh. was like a two night event. And I was like, man, if I was like 25 or 30, you know, in the late seventies, when that Salem lot two night event came out, like that would have made my week, you know, that would have been something that I was marking off on the calendar. Like, yeah. Uh, now it's like everything's delivered, you know, immediately. So there's no, you know, there's no designation either between TVs and movies because like basically anything that you watch that premieres on Netflix, it's made for Netflix. It's made for TV, but the budgets are still are so elevated that, you know, yeah. Um, made for TV movies still work within that, you know, that realm of like, well, we need to, you know, make it affordable. You know, it's got to be profitable. So uh, we need to be able to sell Campbell soups during the commercials. <laughs> uh, that's the thing I, I've I've always admired about Kurt Russell. And I think you can't have a career as long as he did um, without doing all those kinds of roles and exposing all those different sides of your capabilities as an actor uh, and i've loved seeing the stuff he's done in the last couple of years you know uh hateful eight and uh mm-hmm. the small role he had in uh once upon a time in hollywood uh and death proof which is uh just such a such a great great role 
Uh, I'm a Kurt Russell fan. And uh, you know what? Now that we think about it, Escape from New York might have been my first exposure to him. Uh, yeah. I had a really cool aunt and uncle who would expose us to stuff that we probably shouldn't have seen. Um, and they had either, you know, a, a copy of Escape from New York that they had like either taped off TV or okay. I can't imagine they had bought it because VHS was so expensive back then. But yeah, so like when we used to go visit them uh, or, you know, my mom would need a night off. And so like they would babysit us. Um, I remember watching Escape from New York and like Escape from New York isn't a terrible like I mean, by today's standards, nothing in Escape from New York that's like um, like today, if you rated Escape from New York, it would probably be PG-13. Yeah. You know, so I don't think they were like we were being exposed to anything terrible. Uh, now that I think about it, Escape from New York is probably like the first thing that like I connected all the dots with. And I was like, oh, I know okay. that guy. Yeah. Uh, that's another like I remember when that came on a DVD, how excited I was to be able to like watch that in widescreen and not on like a shitty pan and scan uh, as uh, I even like Escape from L.A. I'm you know, I'm one of those. OK, but I, I love you know, it's kind of funny. I think on the on the Big Trouble in Little China episode, you kind of mentioned how like, you know, Kurt Russell was like uh, John Carpenter's Robert De Niro to yeah, Scorsese. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I love that. I love any time that like a filmmaker, a director and an actor uh, just click the way like they it. do and they like working together. I don't know if you have any of those Carpenter or like Big Trouble in Little China on, on DVD or not, but I do uh, the commentary track, I believe, is um, Carpenter and Kurt Russell. Or I might be thinking of the DVD commentary for the thing. But either way, there's like 10 minute section where like they just they hadn't seen each other in enough time that like they start just going out on tangents and they're talking about oh, their kids softball team or something. That's great. Um, yeah. But I love that. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I know some people get tired of like, you know, like filmmakers working with the same actor over and over again. But like you're going to be spending sometimes months and long hours every day. Like, why not make a movie with somebody that you enjoy spending time with? Agreed. I mean, people do it in all kinds of jobs. It happens. Now, I when do you recall seeing The Best of Times? Or did you watch it in the theater or do you remember when you first watched it? Yeah, probably whenever it debuted on HBO. So okay. like, you know, I, I don't know how long it's a couple years later. To, maybe. Yeah. But that's one again, like this is a movie I wouldn't have been excited about. And mm -mm. this was like totally one that I'm sure my dad put on and we watched it because there was nothing else to do. Uh, but it's funny, I hadn't seen this movie in a really, really, really long time. Uh, it's it's funny what memories I had of it. I remember in my mind and we're jumping to the end of the movie here, but in my mind, like the Dr. Death stuff was like, wow. all I remembered was Robin Williams on the line with Dr. Death. Oh my and God, like, really? Well, well, yeah. And watching it back now, I'm like, it's yeah. such a small part of this mm -hmm. movie, but it's like, I think that's the only thing that like really, really super appealed to kids. Uh, other, you know, when he dresses up in the tiger costume and does all that mayhem. Uh, it was interesting to watch it again now as an adult. And I watched it two times in, in preparation for this uh, recording. It's free on like, Pluto and I think uh, Freebie. Um, Tubi so, and Roku, like yeah. the Roku channel, I think is how I watched yeah, it. Yeah, so I watched mm -hmm. it with commercials. It was fine. Uh, it was interesting watching this as an adult now. And I know it's not really, you know, thought of that highly or thought of at all mm -hmm. um, because it's, did you call it a comedy at the beginning or did you call well, it a dramedy? A, dramedy, a sports yeah. dramedy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really, it's not like a super, super funny movie. It's not, um, no. There's a couple of moments where I chuckled. We have that whole sort of bit where like they're trying to watch the game while they're trying to have dinner. 
with their wives. Yeah, yeah. That um, was kind of humorous. There were a couple of moments, but like I would not call this a, a comedy by any stretch. And that's what I kind of appreciated about it. Uh, I think it was cool to see Robin Williams like in a role where he doesn't have to be going nuts and, you know, at 90 miles an hour. It was kind of cool to watch us like a sort of subdued and more relaxed Robin Williams. He was good. Um, yeah. And I think Kurt's great in this, too. And the, the other thing, Katie, that really blew my mind with this movie is it's been 13 years since they played this high school game, right? So these are characters that are supposed to be, what, 30 years old, maybe? 30, 31. Yeah. Something like that. Whereas yeah. in my kid's mind, I was like, these are guys that are in their mid 40s. Yeah. Oh, my God. And <laughs> I feel like I have this conversation with people all the time just about how people looked older than they. Yeah. Looked. Like a 30 year old now looks to me like a child. So, well, yeah. You know, and and but... also like, yeah, they, they would like also when they bring in that whole like offensive line or whatever, like mm -hmm. they're all like look really run down run and down. out of shape, you know. It's so funny, like in this, when I watch this, I'm like, it's only been 13 years. I'm like, yeah. if they made the movie today, it would be like 25 years. since. Yes, they it, I, Craig, I thought the same thing this whole time. I'm like, this is, they're literally like still young people. But at any rate, you know what? Um, I actually had never seen this movie before. Okay, it, cool. It was one that we had taped from TV, probably like our VHS, like in our Memorex cabinet. I don't even think I was five yet when this movie came out. So mm -hmm. that's never going to be the movie I choose if it's time to pick a movie. Even though I, when I was a kid, I didn't really know anything about it. It just seemed boring to me. It was, so an adult. Never, it was a movie yeah. for adults. Yeah. Yeah. So yesterday was the first time I had watched The Best of Times. Oh, cool. Yeah. And another thing is, I think movies nowadays are remembered by how much they ran you know, on HBO or mm. other TV channels. Mm. There are movies that were just in heavy, heavy rotation. Yeah. And there are movies that aren't good that are still fondly remembered because of how often they uh, they were on TV. And yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like uh, The Best of Times is just a movie that isn't really remembered that much. And, you know, that's kind of why when you were asking for like, Kurt Russell movies to do. I was like, well, you know, as cool as it would be to talk about Big Trouble in Little China or the thing, like used cars or the best of times, mm -hmm. um, would be really, really fun conversations as well. Yeah. No, I like I like a more offbeat conversation. Like this is. Uh, I'm curious, listeners, tell us if uh, if you've seen this movie before and how you'd rank it among the Kurt movies. But let's get into the best of times. Yeah. So January 31st, 1986 was when this was theatrically released. And it's PG-13. It on IMDb has a six rating. Well, that's that's actually pretty decent. Pretty good. I thought so, too. However, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's 31%. Ooh. So, yeah. Yeah, but I, I wonder how many reviews that's even generated by. Well, you would have to double check. But yeah. it's a mixed bag, we shall yeah. say. Now, Roger... Spottiswood, I don't know if yeah, I'm which his was, name correctly, is the, was the director. Am amazing for me to see. Um, I had no idea that he was the director of this movie. And I also, you know, went back and looked because um, I'm a huge James Bond fan as well. Oh, and okay. He directed one of the uh, Pierce Brosnan movies, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Oh, yep. So yep. as soon as I saw his name, I was like, oh, my God, it's a James Bond director doing like this low-key sort of sports comedy which 
really surprised me. The writer surprised me as well, which uh, in retrospect, it shouldn't have. Yeah. So Roger Spottiswood, some of the others, in addition to Tomorrow Never Dies, like Shoot to Kill, Turner and Hooch. So he did some fun, fun movies like that and Stop My Mom Will Shoot. So there's that. Uh, And then the TV movie, we were just talking about TV movies, the Matthew Shepard story. Mm -hmm. Uh, He directed that. And then to your point about the writer, who is Ron Shelton, and he is known for sports movies. And so after he did this, I think, is when he he was made his name for himself enough to do Bull Durham. Yeah. uh Remembering correctly. Mm -hmm. In addition to Tin Cup, I remember. Yeah, Tin Cup, White Men Can't Jump, which, God, that was such a great movie. I loved that. Yep, Tin Cup and Bad Boys 2. Among oh, uh, many wow. others. So, I mean, from a writing perspective, uh, it's kind of cool to watch this movie, too, and see, like, how obviously, uh, as a writer, he was always sort of using sports as a way to tell his stories, which it's always kind of cool to see like, the nucleus of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was cool to see a, a name that, that that I was familiar with. And that 31%... Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I'm going to watch this movie again anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, I was able to watch it twice in the period of about two weeks. Uh, and it's an enjoyable enough movie. I mean, it's not overly long. It's like, what, an hour and 45 minutes or something. Yep. Uh, again, you've got Rob Williams and um, Kurt Russell, and you've got a great supporting cast. So it's it's not a hard movie to watch. And I've always talked about that. People talk about like, oh, it's the worst movie I've ever seen when it comes to movies. And I'm like, well... The only way a movie can be really bad, in my opinion, is if it's boring. Um, Mm. And I mean, if it's not boring, you can't really say it's the worst of anything. But like a a movie's job at the end of the day is like, for the most part to entertain. And if a movie keeps your attention and entertains it, it did what it what it did. Now, Mm -hmm. you might have a different opinion in terms of like how entertaining this movie or how hard to watch it was. But uh, this isn't a movie for me where like I was constantly checking my watch to see how, you know, how much time was left. Agreed. I think there are some really nice things about it. There's I, like to your point about the casting, a lot of familiar faces. Um, and that's the thing that I notice a lot when I'm rewatching these older movies is now I'm like, Oh, that's the person in blah, 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 you know, yeah. from two years ago or something so it's not exceptional but it it's fine i don't know it unfortunately yeah. did not make money its yeah. budget was 12 million dollars and it only grossed 7.8 worldwide mm. so yeah that's a little rough yeah well you know it's funny like i i the worldwide aspect of it i can totally understand because football is not something that I think outside of the United States, people even care about. So having a, a movie that's sort of built around American football, I can see like an audience in in uh, Italy not caring about mm-hmm. that. Uh, but yeah, the other thing about this, and this isn't really tied to the uh, to the box office or anything, this is just where my mind's going right now, is it's always cool for me, Katie, to watch movies that take place in a, a time period where our nostalgia kicks in mm-hmm. and we're like, you know, people think of the 80s and they think of the 80s sort of cafe from Back to the Future 2 or really, really 80, 80s movies. Whereas mm-hmm. this is a movie from 86 where, like, if you told me it was 1978, I would probably believe you. Because yeah, there's, that's the coolest thing about watching movies like this for me is it helps me 
ground myself in, you know, remembering that the 80s weren't all like, you know, Boy George and Ghostbusters. Uh, There was just regular, Regular. you know, small time or small town, no living going on. And um, everything wasn't like bright, you know, neon colors or Miami Mm -hmm. Vice, you know, splashes of colors and things. So that was the other cool thing is like, you know, this is a movie from 86, whereas like, put it on and you're like well it's not overtly 1986 but this is probably more in tune with what life was like for really adults yeah. in 1986 um, also i know i know we mentioned the cast a little bit it was cool seeing uh kirk cameron which you talked about growing pains was uh around this time it, as well so it like, premiered this, this the same year so yeah because yeah. that was one thing i was like wow kirk cameron looks really really young here he does um, he plays so he plays Kurt Russell's son, Reno Hightower's yeah. Kurt Russell's character's name, and yeah. Kirk Cameron plays his son. Yeah. And then do you know who played the daughter? It was um, Robin Robin oh. Lively. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And you know what I learned? Like literally, I, I learned like this week that Robin Lively and Blake Lively are half sisters. Are they? Yeah, they have the same dad. You know, so that happened in. The best of times twice then because let's see who is it holly palance plays ellie dundee who is robin williams characters who his name is jack dundee she yeah. plays his wife in the movie and she at the time was actually married to the director oh wow and okay. she is jack palance's daughter oh jack wow. palance who for those yeah. listeners, he was one of the bad guys. Um, I, he, well, he's done a lot of things, but uh, we talked about him in our Tango and Cash episode. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. I, mm-hmm. I never made the connection with that last name that yeah. she was, because um, she was in quite a few movies. Of, she was. Uh, yeah. She was the nanny in The Omen. Okay. And uh, she looks very familiar, but the face that I found more familiar was Pamela Reed. Oh, yeah. Who plays She was Gigi. another one. Uh, who's Kurt Russell's wife. And she's a very familiar actress. Uh, she was in The Right Stuff, Proof of Life. And then a couple Arnold movies, Junior and Kindergarten Cop. And I noticed her most from playing Leslie Nope's mom in Parks and Rec. Did you watch <laughs> okay. that show? Yeah, actually, Parks and Rec is a show I watched kind of after it had its run when Peacock first hit. Uh, I started watching that show on Peacock. So, uh, yeah, I, that's my kind of comedy. But yeah, uh, Pamela Reed. Yeah, I I really remember her from from Kindergarten Cop. She had like the, like the goofy husband in that movie. Um, I mean, they're just a, a rock solid cast here. You know, just a lot of journeyman uh, actors. I think some of the funniest scenes are probably between uh, you know Kurt and his and his wife, especially the one where like the main yeah. scene with Kurt uh, Cameron, where he comes out when Kurt comes to the house and he's talking about the mom moving out and he says, "Oh, she'll be back," and then. He's supposed to help his mom take a box out and Kurt mm-hmm. jumps in and takes it out and she starts talking a little bit of trash about him. Uh, I think some of the probably funnier moments of the film are between the two of them. Uh, yeah, I agree. He is constantly wanting to leave him. So they live in uh, really quickly for those of you who haven't seen this in a while, just as a quick plot summary. Uh, we have Jack Dundee is a meek banker living in Taft, California. He constantly thinks about the 1972 high school football game between Taft and Powerhouse Bakersfield. Dundee dropped a perfectly pass from quarterback and friend Reno Hightower, ending in a scoreless tie. 
He wants to replay the game and redeem himself, but has trouble convincing Reno and the town to replay the game. So Jack resorts to desperate measures to make the game a reality. And so in Taft is this little town and they have to convince the whole town. And it, I don't know about you, but I sort of the way they portrayed Taft or the way that we're introduced to this town, I'd assumed it was in Texas. It had yeah. a more Texas feel than California. Yeah, be because they talk about like the oil, like I guess how it was a uh, oil, but like a boom town. Yeah. Um, I really liked the the opening minutes of this movie where you sort of got Robin Williams giving a voiceover of like the town and, and why it's the way it is and how it ties into the football game that he is responsible for them losing. I really thought that was cool. And uh, it was all shot like in that town, which I yeah. thought was kind of neat, too. I know they shot the. There. I know they shot the football game at a different high school's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, football field. But it was kind of cool because, you know, that's, a, again, like, anytime you watch a movie from California, normally you get like L.A. or San Francisco. Yeah. You don't get like Taft. I guess it's in proximity to Bakersfield because they play Bakersfield. But kind of like, you know, these non-glamorous California uh, towns, which is. Yeah, it's just. It's well, where I was going with that to your point about it. So they portray it as sort of a town you'd want to leave when you grow up. And so Reno's wife has been wanting to move to L.A. She wants to be someone. And so she's constantly threatening or leaving him. And he kind of knows the drill. I like the names. I did note we have Jack Dundee and Reno Hightower. Those are very Stallone-esque names, don't you think? Oh, yeah. And it's funny, too, because like we've got like, around that time, Police Academy was was popular. And one of the characters mm -hmm. was named uh, Hightower. And mm -hmm. then isn't Jack Dundee that wasn't that like Crocodile Dundee's name? Mick Dundee. Oh, Mick Dundee. OK, yeah. yeah. Mick Dundee. Yeah, but, oh, I yeah, love but, that. But, but those are definitely they look like they could be names that Stallone had in his notebook of names that I need yes. to use eventually. Yes, I thought <laughs> that's totally what I thought. Now, I guess I thought I wasn't expecting this for some reason just before. what I don't know what I thought it was going to be, but I immediately learned that these both of these guys are, quote unquote, losers, but in a different way. And I just I, I liked the journey of what their mindset was and kind of how the, the football game is kind of. Well, this is cheesy, but the football game is kind of what brought them both out. So like. Reno, he's happy living his, despite the fact that he's in crazily in debt. His wife keeps wanting to leave him. Um, he's just like happy because in high school, he was a big deal. And he's happy being sort of that has been high school character. And we learn later, he's actually scared. Like he wants to be remembered that way and not what if we lose again? And, you know, now I'm a, a real loser, you know? Yeah. I was expecting that. Yeah. And that's still like the, part of this movie that completely resonated with me watching it as an adult because mm -hmm. it hits on things that people think about as they get older. You know, you think about missed opportunities or um, how your life would be if something had gone different. Uh, so that was like really the appealing part of this was just seeing like these people deal with just the kind of stuff that people in life think about. Robin Williams on the surface, he's a president of the bank. You'd think he'd be happy. But then he's going to see a, you know, a, a call girl and he just wants to talk. You know, it's not yeah. about sex. It's just about making that being able to sort of, you know, I guess 
it's therapeutic or in a way, but without seeing a therapist or seeing somebody that's going to judge you. Uh, to that point, I was just going to point out that he can't talk to his wife about it because his wife's father owns the banks and he yeah. is constantly, he won't let Jack forget that he's a loser, so to speak, and that he dropped the ball and he only, I gave you this job and I have to put up with you because of it. And so you can't go talk to your wife about that because it's her dad. But I mean, that's really what gives this movie any kind of weight that it that it has. Uh, the other cool thing I kind of appreciated as a Stallone fan was, you know, it's not in the spot where we normally get it, but we had the training montage where, oh yeah, um, yeah. you know, everybody gets back into shape, and it starts with like Robin wanting them all to do like the twenty minute Jane Fonda style workout. Uh, Aerobics, yeah. Before they pivot back to just like traditional training, but like it's always great to see like a montage executed. And here it was interesting because like you get the training montage and then you get a, another act of the film before they actually go and play the game. Uh, but I also thought like the final football game I thought was really, really well done. Um, you know, it's cinematic, you know, we get the, the rain. So like the whole oh, yeah. field becomes incredibly muddy, but then we also get like, during halftime, we get the reveal that like, Robin Williams character is the reason that everybody got energized to play the game. And then Kurt basically benches him. Uh, and then the, uh, the other thing I really, really thought was cool was the end. They get to basically recreate that past the same scene. That, yeah. that has been haunting him. Now, I wanted to sort of get your take on this because Kurt benches him and he basically takes away his opportunity to redeem himself. And then towards the last play, one of the players says, you're not going to throw to him. And he says, of course I'm not. Uh, and then they get the to the whole Dr. Death thing where Rob Williams isn't able to get open. And then Kurt basically says, you better catch this. But do you, like, what was your feeling on whether or not, like, Kurt was going to make that pass or not? Because he told the other person he wasn't going to throw to him. So, I was curious, like watching it, like what your takeaway was and that for the character's motivation and things yeah, like that. Good question. So there's a scene where, I don't know, they're on like their fourth chance. I don't know football that well, but we've seen Robin's, Robin Williams can't get open because of the Dr. Death guy. Uh, and so this is like their last, their last chance for down, whatever, however football works. And so he calls a timeout with five seconds left. And they're down. They need, they're down like seven or eight points. So they need this touchdown or they're down like six points or something, mm -hmm. whatever. They need this. Yeah. They need a touchdown to win the game. So he calls a timeout and Jack and Reno have a discussion, like a true heart to heart where he's like, I will get open. And I think they have a thing between them because they've been friends for so long. And he's like, I need this. And I, I promise you that I'll get open. Just throw the ball to me. So I think in that moment, Kurt, he convinced him. He he's like, okay, that's what we're doing. But then he has to tell the other guys, like, no, I want to. Like, I think he just tells them that he wants to win, so that there's, I don't know, for, I don't know if it was so that they're surprised as well. But I think that he was convinced he was going to throw it to Robin Williams the whole time. What did you really? Think? Okay, so you didn't think it was like that speech convinced him? No, the speech convinced him. Okay, like the timeout. Yeah, um, yeah. the speech. The, the conversation that the two of them have together is what convinced him. Okay. Even yeah. That I don't was, think he was going to. Yeah. That, that's my takeaway as well. And I also love that pass 
Uh, it's probably the single funniest moment in the movie where I think this is one of the movies where you know how it's going to end. Of course. Um, because it's that kind of movie. You know you're not going to, he's not going to drop the ball and everybody's going to go home bummed out. Uh, so it's just, it's just a matter of, of how you're going to get there. And I kind of loved like how he, he didn't immediately catch the ball. He kind of like one hands it and then it like kind of wraps around his body. Um, he fumbles it he, a lot. Yeah. Before he finally secures it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I dug that. Um, I think it's a well shot sequence. And, you know, so it didn't surprise me that a, a director like Roger Spottiswood was involved with that. But this movie sends you home exactly the way it's supposed to send you home. And uh, again, I don't think anybody expected it to end any other way. But then that's the beauty of making making that film anyway, is like the journey and how you get there and how it's executed and how it's performed. Uh, and in that sense, I think the movie kind of succeeds. I agree. Both men get their redemption by this game. And had Robin Williams not tricked Reno into it, he wouldn't have had his chance to, because there was a moment where Reno has to, you know, there, there's a fire lit under him and he has to take charge and be the leader that he once was and, and proved himself that he, that he can still be that person. And, and then Robin Williams' character, Jack, gets his redemption because that's what he's wanted this whole time. He's like, I can catch that. I don't love the message that that sends but you know it, it's that kind of a movie and they both make up with their wives and now finally jack gets his due respect from his father-in-law and the father-in-law we get a nice little uh reward from him falling in a mud puddle after being <laughs> yeah. such a jerk so that was nice what did you think about the kid lester storyline that we're shown at the beginning and then there's a little bit of a payoff at the end yeah, I, I think, again, that was kind of defining how, like, a a town's reputation could be tied to or a town's morale could be tied to something like a game or or the Kid Lester uh, story. Um, yeah. And then obviously that old man. That was him, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. 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 Uh, I dug it and I, I, I always dig subtlety. I always appreciate when a filmmaker uh, is like, we don't need to slap you in the face with something. Uh, so I always kind of appreciate subtlety. And uh, I think overall that like it's a it's a cool, it was a cool backstory because it kind of established like the overall mood of the town. Like, I think you even see like there's a scene in the movie there where they're in front of a movie theater and it says it's under renovation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we flash to it later and it shows that it's going to have its grand reopening or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think that was kind of cool too because it kind of showed that like, the town was kind of rejuvenated yeah. uh, on the upswing, if you will. Um, yeah. Yeah, I that appreciated was nice. it. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I, I guess my feelings were, I, I don't know if they either didn't do enough with it or should have let it go. I, I, I wanted to touch more about the Kid Lester stuff because yeah. I had kind of forgotten about it, yeah. to be honest with you, until the very end when he, when he the old man reveals that he's Kid Lester. Yeah. But, but I, yeah, to your point about it being subtle, I can see that aspect as well. It's always tough, you know, because it's like, do you want to hit people over the head with it? Or do you yeah. want to like, you know, that's why movies ultimately succeed or fail, you know, it's based on how they, how they handle something. But yeah, I think this movie's worth, I mean, especially since you can watch it for free, odds are you have access to one of the streaming platforms that it's streaming free on. Uh, I think it's worth watching if you're ever 
looking for something different to watch, especially if you're like a Robin Williams fan or a Kurt Russell yeah. fan. For a lot of people, like yourself included, it was your first exposure to it. So mm -hmm. it, it must have been really cool to be like, oh, I'm about to watch a Kurt Russell movie. Yeah. You know, that was made when Kurt was sort of in his prime. Um, so that must have been really cool to be able to be like, yeah, I'm watching a brand new Kurt Russell movie. Yeah, that's it is. You know, it 30 is 30 some odd plus years old. Well, why do you think that it tanked? Like, why do you think it didn't do well at the box office? You know, that's really surprising. And I'd have to go back and watch the trailer for this. I don't think mm. I watched the trailer. Yeah. Uh, but I'd imagine that. And I think John Belushi kind of suffered from it. I just finished what, reading a John Belushi biography and they talk about like his post Blues Brothers and Animal House failures. And I think it might have been the same thing with this where Robin Williams, everybody kind of knew him as like the crazy Mork for Mork, very high energy personality. And this movie is, it's not that. You get a, a more subdued uh, acting performance out of Rob Williams. So I wish I had watched the trailer because I wonder how they framed this movie. Did they frame it as a wacky comedy? And then people saw it and they were like, well, this isn't a wacky uh, yeah. comedy. And then word of mouth probably killed it. Either way, word of mouth probably killed this because they were probably like, it's not a flat out Robin Williams comedy. And I, I think Kurt Russell was always kind of dependent on like, I don't think Kurt ever made or broke a movie by him being in it. Uh, which isn't to discount his his draw right. as a, as, no, a, as an actually, actor, but I mean, like, yeah, I was just yeah. trying to think, but that's that's a good observation. Yeah. So yeah, I think it was probably just a matter of it. It wasn't the movie people were expecting, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, word of mouth was probably just like, yeah, this isn't. It's not a, a crazy wacky comedy. And I also kind of feel that like sports movies weren't. I think sports movies were about to explode again because like probably the next year we got Major League, which is was kind of like a crazy comedy. Mm -hmm. We also had that Goldie Hawn movie, Wildcats, which was oh, yeah. about like mm -hmm. her like coaching a team of misfits. Uh, and then all the other Ron Shelton stuff like, you know, Bull Durham and Tin Cup. Um, so I think this movie might have been just a little before that. Yeah. Uh, but it also didn't tap into like the underdog aspect the way that like a movie like Rocky did where yeah. it had a certain yeah. pedigree to it and it was very very elevated filmmaking so I think it was kind of just a probably just middle of the road enough to not really get anybody excited about it I fully agree if you have a few more minutes there's a few yeah. pieces of trivia yeah I'm curious so apparently both Robin Williams and Kurt Russell both played high school football before becoming actors oh nice and they performed their own stunts in this movie. Oh, sweet. So um, like all the football stuff we see with Kurt was Kurt. Yeah, it's not oh, body nice. doubles. Yeah, I yeah. didn't. Yeah, I didn't know that. And I love hearing that. I very much appreciate that. We already talked about Bull Durham. So this was Shelton's first sports movie. So maybe he was just cutting his teeth a little bit. Yeah, well, maybe and thankfully he it. wasn't discouraged either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, we've already talked about how Kirk Cameron plays Reno and Gigi's son. Now, Tracy Gold, I looked for this and I missed it. Tracy Gold plays an unnamed friend of Jack and Holly's daughter. Okay. Or Ellie's I, daughter. I, I, I don't remember seeing her, but I, I can tell you the exact scene she was in. You can? It's when, okay. Well, uh, it's when they're having dinner and her friends come over and she like leaves the dinner table and all her friends are at the front door. That's got to be the scene. Okay. 
I missed it, but yeah. So well, no, I don't remember seeing Tracy yeah. Gold, but like in the back of my head, I'm like, there was a group of girls there. Yeah, it had to have been. Odds then. are she was one of those girls. Yeah, yeah. Well, so obviously by the time this movie released, Cameron and Gold were playing brother and sister in Burn Pains, and then uh, same on the same thread. Russell played Dexter Riley in the computer that wore tennis Lord, shoes. Okay. Yeah. 1969. Yeah. Well, Cameron, Kirk Cameron played that same role in 1995 when they did oh. a television remake for it. Oh, wow. So That's cool. cool connection. A yeah. connection after the fact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then the real kid Lester died in 1916. So I didn't even know that was a real person, but apparently yeah. it's a real person and he died in 1916 at the age of 26. So it couldn't have been. Yeah, so they got a little creative there with the mm -hmm. timeline. Yeah. Oh, wow. Do you have any final oh. thoughts before we kind of close? No. Again, I'm glad we were able to talk about this movie because it gave me an excuse to watch it again uh, as an adult, which I think it's, you know, kind of an adult movie. I always appreciate talking about movies that haven't been covered to death on podcasts because uh, they're movies that, you know, I'm not going to say are, are forgotten, but it's kind of cool that this movie will, you know, Odds are somebody's going to watch it at some point and Google it. I do that all the time when I watch a movie. I'm like, okay, what podcast has talked about this? So who oh, knows? Maybe okay. a couple of years from now, somebody's going to watch this and they'll be like, oh, let me see if there's a podcast. And they're like, oh, okay, Retro right. made did an episode. Yeah. So, And again, it's, it's always cool to sort of talk about a movie that hasn't been talked to death. Uh, and especially since it was your first time watching it, I'm glad you were able to watch a, a movie that you hadn't really uh, been exposed to before. So. I again, again, it's free. You don't have to spend any money to watch this. Like if you're ever like on a Saturday, a rainy Saturday, put it on. Um, you know, it's worth things you can do with an hour and 45 minutes of your time. That's true. And I like movies you can kind of have on in the background and only like you don't have to super pay attention. I kind of like that, too. Well, you know, what? you know, it's funny on your Big Trouble in Little China episode. You talked about plot with, with Ryan. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, no. And I'm the same way. And like I. I mentioned I'm a big James Bond fan. And for me, like, I've never followed those James Bond plots. Like, I don't care. Like, ultimately, it doesn't really matter what the mm -hmm. bad guy's doing. We just know he's bad. We know yeah. Bond's going to go to a bunch of different cities, mm -hmm. finding out why the guy's bad. Um, and and it's funny when we do, like, our Stallone show episodes and we kind of I like, love those, oh, thank by you. the way. But, like, when we're doing, like, the plot rundowns, I'm like, for me, I'm like, a lot of times... I'm the same way as you. Like the plot is kind of like, I don't get too caught up in it. I, I just rewatched a bunch of mission impossible possible movies. And it's the same thing. I'm like, yeah, there's like shadowy, you know, figures doing shadowy things. But like, really, I want to watch like Tom Cruise hanging off the little plane. <laughs> yeah. But take it for what it is. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now I was going to say a lot of times plots can really trip up enjoying a movie. That's a good point, especially if it's your first time watching like an older movie and yeah, then yeah. You, your brain has trouble with it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. While The Best of Times may not have been a hit, there was a lot of other awesome songs and TV and toys that made January of 1986 seem like last. But we must now return to present day reality until the next Retromade episode. Craig, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today to talk Kurt Russell, Robin Williams, The Best of Times. You're a man of many talents. And tell us where we can find some of the projects that you're working on. Oh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, being a guest host on a podcast is so awesome because you get a lot of the benefits with not a lot of the work that comes with podcasting. Like basically, 
you told me to be here at this time. I mean, I was able to sit down uh, and talk the movie with you. Um, so thank you for that. I, I love guesting. Uh, in terms of where you can find me and what I'm doing, uh, I do have a landing page. Uh, I'll send you the link. Yeah, I'll link it in the show notes, guys. Yeah, um, but that's got all my stuff. Uh, I'm uh, probably a month away from releasing my third in, uh, album of all instrumental music and um, not to get too in the weeds. That's um, awesome. Uh, my previous projects, I've always worked with deadlines. I'm very deadline. Like for me, like if I don't have a deadline, odds are I'm not going to do it. I am um, the same way. And so for this batch of songs, I said to myself, I'm going to make, a collection of music that's got no like no deadline um so it's going to challenge me in a couple ways it's going to challenge me in the fact that like eventually i'm going to have to finish it uh but also like i'm not working under like super time constraints my first one i made in the month of july like i wrote and produced and executed it all in a 30-day period oh wow um which was really cool it was a cool experiment it was a cool way to flex muscles i hadn't flexed before but for this one, it was cool that like I just finished a song earlier this week that I had initially worked on uh, almost two years ago. Uh, and there were aspects of it that I hadn't figured out yet. So it's kind of neat to like, start something, put it in the closet for a while and then come back to it because it's mm -hmm. almost like you're collaborating with yourself. Because it's like relearning, like, why did I do this? Or why did I play this chord or whatever? And then figuring out how to finish it. And like I said, it, it like for me, it's like solving a puzzle or a math problem or something. So I'm really looking forward to that. I do have a Bandcamp page. I think if you search Craig Cohen or Mr. Craig Cohen uh, on Google, you'll find most of my, you'll find links to most of my stuff. But on my Bandcamp page, you can listen to everything. Uh, you can listen on Spotify if you search Craig Cohen. Uh, but that's yeah, impressive. that's impressive. Oh, thank you. And then also, uh, the Slycast feed outside of Last of the Action Heroes podcast is still active. So there's hours and hours of me analyzing Stallone movies with people. Uh, and then also, I do have an independent feed for a show I did called Big Screen Book Club, which we talked about movies and movies that were adapted, oh. uh, which is pretty neat. That never really took off the way I thought it was, mainly because it's a lot easier to sit down and watch a 90-minute movie than to sit down and read a two- or 300-page book. Uh, That's true. <laughs> uh, and then also the most recent like podcasting stuff I've done outside of the network was a show I did called Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims, which was sort of a deep dive into Pulp Fiction, where each episode I sat down with a different fan of the movie and we kind of just hash it out. So, uh, But all of that's included in that landing page that, that okay, you'll good. have there's plenty of ways to find me if you're at all interested in listening to me blather or you know listen to the strange music that i create and either way i appreciate the exposure that's awesome oh i'll have the link to his stuff in the show notes everyone mm -hmm. and thank you all for listening or watching please remember to share the show and remember a review and or a rating does go a long way to help other retro junkies find the show until next time, be kind, rewind.